Let's turn to Exodus chapter 21. We'll read verses 12 through 36 this morning. We're walking through the book of Exodus. We've come to a place which is often described as case law, but let me remind you where we have come. God delivered his people out of slavery in Egypt. He brought them to the mount called Sinai. At Mount Sinai, God from the, from the top of the mountain spoke for, with his own voice and declared the Ten Commandments. And after giving those Ten Commandments, he then transitions invites Moses up to the mountain, and he says, Moses, I'm going to give to you other laws that will be useful for application in the life of this new nation. God was establishing a civil government on the face of the earth. And so as you read this passage, you need to recognize that it's something akin to the blending of a church and a state. These are not binding on us today, except insofar as as they teach us something spiritually, and they generally show us the heart of God concerning issues of justice and mercy. And so we pick up at chapter 21. We'll read verses 12 through 36. This is not some boring legal brief. Uh, This is the Word of God. And so let's be sure to give a reverent attention to it. 21.12, whoever strikes a man so that he dies shall be put to death. But if he did not lie in wait for him, but God let him fall into his hand, then I will appoint for you a place to which he may flee. But if a man willfully attacks another to kill him by cunning, you shall take him from my altar that he may die. Whoever strikes his father or his mother shall be put to death. Whoever steals a man and sells him and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. Whoever curses his father or his mother shall be put to death. When men quarrel and one strikes the other with a stone or with his fist, and the man does not die but takes to his bed, then if the man rises again and walks outdoors with his staff, he who struck him shall be clear, only he shall pay for the loss of his time and shall have him thoroughly healed. When a man strikes his slave, male or female, with a rod, and the slave dies under his hand, he shall be avenged. But if the slave survives a day or two, He is not to be avenged, for the slave is his money. When men strive together and hit a a pregnant woman so that her children come out and there is no harm, the one who hit her shall surely be fined as the woman's husband shall impose on him. And he shall pay as the judge is determined. But if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, Hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. When a man strikes the eye of his slave, male or female, and destroys it, he shall let the slave go free because of his eye. If he knocks out the tooth of his slave, male or female, he shall let the slave go free because of his tooth. When an ox gores a man or a woman to death, the ox shall be stoned and its flesh shall not be eaten, but the owner of the ox shall not be liable. But if the ox has been accustomed to gore in the past, and its owner has been warned but has not kept it in, and it kills a man or woman, the ox shall be stoned, and its owner also shall be put to death. If a ransom is imposed on him, then he shall give for the redemption of his life whatever is imposed on him. If it gores a man's son or daughter, he shall be put to death according to this same rule. If the ox gores a slave, male or female, the the owner shall give to their master 30 shekels of silver, and the ox shall be stoned. When a man opens a pit 
Or when a man digs a pit and does not cover it, and an ox or donkey falls in it, the owner of the pit shall make restoration. He shall give money to its owner, and the dead beast shall be his. When one man's ox butts another's so that it dies, then they shall sell the live ox and share its price, and the dead beast also they shall share. Or if it's known that the ox has been accustomed to gore in the past, and its owner has not kept it in, he shall repay ox for ox, and the dead beast shall be his. This is God's word. Let's pray for the ministry of his spirit and his help. Our Father God, we recognize as we come to this particular passage that there are many, many, many generations and a, and a different culture and time that separates us sitting here today from the moment when these words were spoken and written down. And yet this is your word. And so we pray that as you have said you would do, you would send forth your word And by sending forth your word, you would accompany the preaching of it by the ministry of your spirit so that we would have ears to hear what you would say to your people. And again, we ask that you would be willing to use a sinful, crooked stick like me to point the narrow way to Christ Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. We've come to a spot in the Bible. It's a spot where most people would ordinarily come with great confusion And perhaps with that great confusion, they'd go, let's turn beyond this to something that's more interesting and useful. I think that is usually beginning from a place of misunderstanding what God has here. I do want to simply break down the text by telling you that there is a category, a category for each type of law which is listed in the Old Testament. I'm going to break down those for you. The first is the moral law. This is the basic law which God requires for obedience to him. It's summarized in the Ten Commandments. The moral law requires obedience, you remember, both internally and externally. It's an issue of heart and mind and will and action. And it's binding on all people whether they even know it or not. To be clear, the Old Testament was always a book of grace. Grace. The Old Testament. So it's not something that we outgrow because it isn't as if the Lord rescued his people because they were obedient. In fact, in the Old Testament, God rescued his people while they were still disobedient. This is the same God of the New Testament who comes to sinners while we were still sinners. Christ died for us. Christ, who himself obeyed the moral law perfectly. And so Jesus' obedience makes the sacrifice of his life sufficient to pay for your sins. So how do those who are in Christ, like us, how do we use the moral law? Well, we use the moral law as, as a guide to teach us how to love God and to love others. And we are accompanied and helped by the ministry of the Holy Spirit to a new obedience. But the moral law remains throughout this life. Second category is the ceremonial laws. These are laws that are related to Old Testament worship. These are instructions about sacrifices, about tabernacle, how it's to be built, about what the priest is supposed to wear, about what furniture is in the tabernacle. Ceremonial laws are fulfilled in Christ. So they're no longer practiced in the Christian church 
Because all of those ornaments that ordained, excuse me, that, that accompanied Old Testament worship are pointing forward to Jesus Christ. They're fulfilled in Christ, which is why the confession says they are abrogated. That is, they're done away with because they are fulfilled here, which is why Christ becomes the center of all New Testament worship. Hebrews 9, Christ has not only become the high priest, he has also made himself the perfect sacrifice, the Lamb of God, to take away the sins of his people. The final category, and this is what we just read, the final category is called civil laws. To be very clear, there's only been one time in human history when God made a covenant relationship with one single nation. He didn't do it with the United States of America. He didn't do it with America. This isn't a Christian nation. He did it one time in human history with the nation of Israel. And in bringing this together, you recognize that all of these laws expired with the nation of Israel, but they're still relevant. They're still relevant, so we read these passages. In what way are they relevant? Uh, If you're not used to reading things like the Westminster Confession of Faith at your church, you probably went, I don't know why we're doing this. There's one key phrase that's so important I want you to hear. It was the term general equity. What do you learn when you read civil laws? God is teaching us what general fairness and justice should look like. He's actually revealing his heart. And so when you come to a place like this, you say, what's the point? Well, you live in a world that is deeply self-centered, deeply unjust, deeply corrupt. So here's some basic teaching on justice. Some basic teaching on the heart of God. And anytime you learn about God's heart on justice, I want to ask you to bear with me. Because if you will bear with me, You will move from God's heart of justice in this passage to the cross of Christ. And it is revealed even in this place. In God's law, the punishment must fit the crime. So we're going to examine this passage under two headings. The first is justice applied, and the second is justice applied spiritually. So we'll start with justice applied. These civil laws are not as scattered or as random as they might at first seem. They're actually really well divided. They're easily distinguished. We're going to break them down this way because this is the way the text does. Capital crimes, personal injuries, criminal negligence. You go, wow, that all sounds very legal. This should be fascinating. Well, if it's legal, it's because it's explaining justice in real life situations. God intends that justice should not go away in the civil society that he's establishing. This is what it should look like as it pertains first to capital crimes. This is verses 12 through 17. These are crimes that in God's law deserve the death penalty. And you might wonder before we even begin, how in the world can a God who seems to value human life, how could he ever demand the death penalty? Well, when we talked about The sixth commandment, you shall not murder. You remember that that commandment is actually rooted in the image of God being present in mankind. And so since every attack on someone who bears the image of God himself is an attack on God, God says there must be a punishment that would make it possible for someone to go, yeah, we should not do this. We should seek to hinder further 
assaults against God's image. Verse 12 is precisely the same as the sixth commandment. But you're going to notice that there's a difference in this, in this portion between killing and murder. We'll cover killing in verses 13 and 14, but verses 12, verse 12 is about murder. And you remember, don't you, that God established this death penalty long before this verse, long before the sixth commandment. He established it all the way back in Genesis chapter 9. Noah gets off the ark. He's giving certain rules. God is giving him certain rules. And he says in Genesis 9 verse 5, Whoever sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. The text is talking about premeditated murder. One person lies in wait with the intention of taking the life of another person. If you want to know the nuances and the various details of this particular law, I would reference you back to my sermon on the sixth commandment. That's, I think you can find it probably on our website or on Apple and Spotify podcast platforms. In that sermon, you'll kind of get those details. I just thought it was cool to say Apple and Spotify platforms. 48-year-old man should not say such silly things. Here's the point. There was this week a judicial ruling that took place in the state of Florida where a 24-year-old man was given a sentence of life in prison having murdered 17 people in Parkland, Florida in 2018. A massacre of shooting. And I'm certain that there are various complications and nuances, but I will simply say this. Sometimes Christian people buy into the notion that the culture sells to them, that we as a society are so advanced that we should move beyond such barbarism as the death penalty. In fact, I've heard many well-intentioned believers try to do theological gymnastics in order to try to be well thought out. And we should be well thought out for sure. But you will not be more well thought out than God. You will not be more concerned about His image than He is. And so in your effort to be compassionate and loving, make sure you recognize that God is more compassionate, that God is more loving, that God is more wise than we are. Complications? Israel existed in a fallen world as well. Israel existed in a time when nuances were true. But the penalty for premeditated murder was death. In order to fight against the injustice that could take place in a fallen world, God made sure that there were always multiple witnesses so that a person couldn't be wrongly accused But when there are multiple witnesses, when there are fair trials, when there are juries, we need not delude ourselves as if we know criminal punishment better than God. Paul, writing in Romans chapter 13, speaks into a context where the Roman government existed, a far more corrupt world than you live in. And Paul says in Romans 13 that the civil authority is a servant of God. The civil authority is an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. And then he goes on to say that the civil government is the servant of God for your good. 
Of course, in cases of the death penalty, it is always complicated. But it is not unjust. One pastor rightly said, in the case of murder, death is the only penalty that preserves the value of human life. Any other punishment is inadequate. So even in a world, friends, where God calls for mercy, God knows that civil societies function best, they are safest. When premeditated murder is punished by death under the hands of just courts and proper civil authorities. There's also lots of times in a fallen world where just plain old accidents happen. And that's what verses 13 and 14 are written to address. Let me mention two possible scenarios. Two men get into an argument. They start pushing. They start shoving. Punches begin to be thrown. One of the men falls over. He hits his head on the edge of a rock. And the man dies. Even though the event took place in the fit of rage, neither of them intended to, to, to murder the other. It was an accident. Another occasion, a man is chopping wood, swinging an axe. The head of the axe handle flies off and hits an innocent bystander in the head. It's an accident, but he's dead. Verses 13 and 14 are written anticipating what God's going to provide in Numbers chapter 35. God says there's going to be six cities around the nation of Israel which are going to be cities of refuge. And if an accidental death occurs, you, the one who caused it, should run to that city of refuge. In fact, what God was doing was making sure that there was no such thing as mob violence or vigilante justice in the nation of Israel. He says, you run. That will give the elders of the city, the judges of the city, time to make sure that there is a fair trial. To make sure that there are witnesses. But then he goes on to say that if that person is found guilty, even though he's hanging on the horns of the altar, that isn't going to be enough. If it was premeditated, he will be taken back and put to death. Another crime that's punishable by death makes you want to wince, perhaps. Verses 15 and 17 refer to striking your father and mother. Verse 17 refers to actually just cursing your father and mother, your a parent here today, I recognize you think I'm on your side here. Children perhaps think your parents put me up to it. That's not what happened. Uh, the commandment is not quite as severe as it sounds at first, but it is connected back to that fifth commandment, honor your father and your mother. And if it seems overly harsh, I want to make three comments about it to explain the issue. The first thing you need to notice is that this provides equal protection for mother and father. So in Old Testament law, you strike your dad or your mom, and you will be put to death. Second comment, the verb that's used here for strike in verse 15 is a word that actually means to beat down. It isn't like playful wrestling that children will engage in with their parents. This is like attempted murder. It's a deliberate, vicious attack. But God cares so immensely for preserving the family because it is the basic building block of the whole of society. More than that, if you raise your hands to strike and kill your parents, to beat them down, is there anyone else who would be off limits? 
Now, this is a person who hates authority. He will not submit even to the ones who love him the most. Verse 17 says that a curse deserves death too. But we should be clear, this is not like some disrespectful comment, mumbling under your breath. It's not simply shouting in anger at your parents. No, most scholars believe that this is a public expression. A person goes into the square, they make an oath, I hate my parents, I wish they were dead. If a teenager does this, he's virtually saying, I will not obey, I want them out of my life. If that's done in adulthood, it's actually even more vile. I refuse to take care of my aging parents. I don't care what happens to them. In fact, I hope they die. Many believe that that's the vow that the prodigal son has made in the parable that Jesus tells. I also alluded last week to verse 16. Kidnapping and enslaving another person is punishable by death. Not only those who did the kidnapping, but also the slave owner. So at its core, what we're talking about is a violation of the Eighth Commandment. You shall not steal. But it's also an assault, isn't it, on the image of God, which is why in God's economy it's, it's punishable by death. So the American chattel slavery system was never biblically sanctioned. God would have had slave traders and slave owners both put to death. We're talking about justice applied in God's law. And so we've covered capital crimes, those crimes that are deserving death. Now let's transition to personal injuries. If you're looking at the text, we're looking at verses 18 through 27. But verses 18 through 21, the main issue that's at play here is the loss of time. Today, people take another person to court and they say, I would like a recompense for my mental anguish. I want to be compensated for how frustrated I was or how difficult this situation was on me. God says, well, those are difficult to quantify. Those are potentially ripe for injustice. So verse 18 really just addresses a situation where, imagine two men get in a fight. One of them gets beaten down either by fist or by stone but he lives. In God's law, it's required that the one who did the hurting pay the injured party for the lost time because the one who has been beat down cannot work during that time. This is an agrarian society. There's no such thing as a a salary. I mean, nobody lays in their bed and recuperates and receives a day's work. And so if someone loses the ability to work, here's a law that compensates them so they do not lose double. Moreover, their family doesn't suffer. Surprisingly, these same laws were valid for slaves as well as free people. If somebody kills your slave, the Bible says he must be avenged. Avenged. It's the Old Testament's way of speaking of the death penalty. But you should be really clear to understand that would be shocking in the ancient world. Everywhere else in the whole ancient world, uh, an upper-class person receives these kind of benefits. But a slave, it's irrelevant. Their life doesn't matter. But in Israel, God says, oh, it matters very much. If someone injures your slave, they owe you money because his or her injury represents also a loss of productivity around your household. Remember, very likely that slave is trying to pay off a debt with you. And so their injury means that they cannot pay what they owe you. But look at this, and this is a a spot I I guarantee you when I read this, you went, "Mm." 
There's, a, there's something different. If a man strikes his own slave and he or she is injured, but the slave survives, verse 21, he is not to be avenged, meaning the master is not to be put to death. And here's the phrase that seems so odd to our ears. It says, for the slave is his money. Oh, here's what it means. If you, slave master, are stupid enough to shoot yourself in your own foot by injuring the slave who is working to help you, then you don't have the ability to compensate yourself for your own stupidity. You're just going to suffer natural consequences, lost earnings, because you were rash and foolish. It's akin to a man who makes a living cutting down trees one day, his chainsaw stops working, crank it, crank it, crank it, and it won't start. And so in a fit of rage, he starts to slam the chainsaw to the ground so that it breaks into pieces. Well, his livelihood just got cut off. He makes his living cutting down trees, but his uncontrolled anger means that he doesn't have the ability to earn any more money. Let's be clear. Here's where that illustration breaks down. In Israel, a slave is not property. But yet, like the chainsaw, he is a person who helps you with the capacity to earn money, a profit. You hurt your slave, you're going to feel it personally. In fact, what we've got here is a law that's meant to eradicate beating up your slaves. It's meant to do away with it. God says, you would be so foolish to treat a human being that way at your own loss. Verses 22 and through 24, the issue changes. We're no longer interested so much about time as we are protection of the weak and vulnerable. Time is not nearly as important as life. Now imagine that two men get into a fight. In the course of their reckless foolishness, a pregnant woman gets hit, and the trauma that's caused to the woman forces her to go into labor, and her child or her children come into the world before their time. The phrase, there is no harm, refers to the children. How do we know that? Well, the woman's already been hit. She's already suffered harm. The Bible says in that case, if there's no loss, but there is trauma, the husband and the judges get to determine the repayment costs of these personal injuries. But then, incidentally, the word is, is children here. It's plural, which simply means not just that a woman who's giving birth to twins or triplets, but also her ability to continue to produce children for her own family. So later on, if we find out that the woman is unable to produce children, then there is a law that goes back to the knuckleheads who were getting in a fight on that day and makes sure that they're still paying for the loss of the other lives that could potentially have been born. All of this is very profound as it pertains to our own understanding of abortion. Because this law goes further. Verse 23, if there is harm meaning to that defenseless baby, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. In God's economy, justice demands that for every injury to a not yet born baby, an equal physical consequence should be laid upon the one who caused it. 
Lex talionis, the law of retaliation. The fetus gets equal protection under the law as every other human being walking around because he or she is is an image bearer of God. It's been observed that if you actually practice an eye for an eye, that, that the whole world would be blind. And probably that's true. But it's a misunderstanding of the law itself. The issue is that there must be a punishment fit to the severity of the crime. Everyone in Israel understood that life for life was actually as far as it was meant to go with regards to physical consequences. How do I know that's true? How do I know that this is what God intended for them to understand? You just look one verse down, 26 and 27, it proves the point. In the context where God is trying to promote fair treatment of slaves, he says, here's a law that says, if you knock out the eye of that slave and he goes blind, he goes free. You knock out the tooth of that slave, he doesn't get to to knock out your tooth, he gets to go free. You see, the point was always obvious. There must be a penalty that hurts the person who ruined someone else's eye as much as it would hurt if the person lost their own eye. So what point can we take from the laws of personal injury? What's general fairness? Here's what you should hear. People that the world says don't count, count immensely in God's economy. They matter to the Lord. Whether it's the innocent bystander who's struck by accident or the child who is ripped from his mother's womb or the slave who's beaten by his master, these are people. A fetus is not a ball of tissue. A slave is not a piece of property. This is radical in the ancient world. Every person matters because every person bears the image of God. And they all need protection. Therefore, we who belong to the Lord and recognize the image of God should be those who are about protecting the weak. Talk about lies, excuse me, about laws applying justice. We've covered capital crimes, personal injuries. Now we're going to close with, I mean, we're going to move to criminal negligence. This is taken up in 28 through 36. All of these examples obviously are suited to a world where everybody owns cattle. Two different scenarios with an oxen. In the first situation, an ox, a bull with horns, gores a human being, and that person dies. Obviously, God's economy. It's a life-for-life scenario. The ox must die. But it's a fallen world, right? The owner of the ox does lose the value of the ox, but there's no additional payment to be made. Verse 29 That is, unless the ox has done this in the past. The owner was warned. Everybody knew this is a dangerous animal. It's got to be guarded against future occurrences. In this case, that second offense makes the owner of the oxen liable for wrongful death. So the ox is put to death, but also the owner could be put to death. We're beginning to weave a trail to the gospel. Please stay Here's a spot where the law allows for one family to be merciful to another. Hey, your oxen killed one of our precious family members. No price can cover our loss. 
And yet your dad's death is not going to cover and bring back the one that we lost. So we will accept a redemption payment in exchange for the life of the oxen's owner. So here's a scenario. There's two scenarios I can imagine that this would be useful. A father or mother is lost. So at least here's a kind of payment that would help alleviate what would otherwise potentially be immediate poverty to this family. Another scenario, we lost a child to your stupid ox and you knew that he kills people. We must bring forth a penalty so that a negligent person feels the kind of sting if financially for the loss of a human life. Pay attention, the the language of verse 30 is so crucial, look at it. If a ransom is imposed on him, then he shall give for the redemption of his life whatever is imposed on him. You notice the law doesn't call this a fine. It is a redemption payment. Douglas Stewart, an Old Testament scholar, says that the negligent person, the one deserving death, symbolically acknowledges that his life, which God has the right to take, has been spared by divine will. So the money serves more like an offering than it is like a fine. Here's a phrase that you're going to hear at the end of this sermon. The ransom is the cost that the judge sets to cover the offense. The redemption is the actual payment given. The only difference in this scenario concerning a slave is that a man who gores another man's slave... There is, of course, a life-for-life payment. The oxen dies. But above that, the one who owned the oxen must give to the slave owner an additional 30 shekels of silver. This is the redemption price of the life of a slave gored by an ox. 30 shekels of silver. It's actually nearly a pound of silver. It's costly. The last two issues pertaining to animals, verse 33 and 36... In the interest of time, I'll summarize it like this. In biblical justice, you are responsible for what you do, but you're also responsible for what you fail to do. If your carelessness results in someone else's loss, you are responsible to make good for it. Even if it was never your intention to hurt somebody, that's actually what people say all the time. I didn't mean to do anything. And yet in the Bible, you are responsible because the other person suffered loss. The punishment must fit the crime. So here's justice applied in God's law. We'll close by looking at justice applied spiritually. These are civil laws. They're meant to bring justice into the midst of human relationships. God was making sure in national Israel, justice can never be neglected. But is justice always the highest good in all relationships? Not necessarily. And I think you know that intuitively. You have a close friend. You have a marriage relationship. You have a relationship between children and parents or parents to children. There are moments, I'm sure, that you have needed something greater than justice in those relationships. 
Because if you got justice, there would be so many times that the relationship would simply be severed, that it would be over. You don't want strict justice in your marriage. You don't want strict justice in your friendships. You don't want strict justice in the relationship between parents to children or children to parents. Why don't you want justice? Because there are so many occasions when your offenses and injuries and negligence would be enough to sever the relationships. Societies need strict justice. But relationships require something greater. Something far more costly. Relationships require mercy. So the Bible says that your offenses, your injuries, your negligence in dealing with a relationship with a holy God, your heavenly Father, those offenses were enough to sever any possible relationship that you could ever have with that God. So much so that your sins, even one of them, is such an offense to the holy God that you actually deserve the the death penalty. Romans 6, 23, the wages of sin is death. That's strict justice. The Lord is a loving God. He's also holy, which is why he cannot have anything less than perfect justice. He knew that it would take something more than than justice. In fact, something more costly than justice to make a relationship with the likes of you and the likes of me. Relationships require mercy. Here's justice applied spiritually. Why did I draw attention to those two words in verse 30? Ransom and redemption. Ransom is the cost that the judge sets to pay to cover the offense. This is what it's going to take to satisfy my justice, to make restitution for justice. What happens if God's the judge? And he says, your sins require the death penalty. That's the ransom. There isn't enough money to cover your offense. Death is the only currency that my justice will accept. Do you have it? You prepared to to pay for your sins today? Against a holy God, you're not prepared. Not only because that that is a price that seems too risky, but the life that you have lived up to this point is not good enough to cover the high cost of the debt you've incurred by your sin. It isn't sufficient to pay the cost that the judge has set. You should pay. You should pay, but you can't. Ransom is the cost the judge sets to cover the offense. The redemption is the actual payment given. Here's the good news of your salvation. This is the gospel. We sometimes get this backward. Jesus didn't give his life in order to make it possible for God to love you. Rather, God, the holy and righteous judge, loved you even when you were not lovely. And he said, I'll provide the redemption payment to free my own child from the death penalty. Mercy is more costly than justice. 
and God says, I'll give my son. But God's not quite finished proving the beauty of his justice applied spiritually. I wonder if you remember a fellow by the name of Judas Iscariot. He's the man who betrayed the Son of God into the hands of sinful men, and he did it for a price. Do you remember the price that he was given in order to hand someone over to be murdered? 30 shekels of silver. According to Exodus 21, 32, when a slave dies, the redemption price is life for life, the oxen, and then 30 shekels of silver. What's the point? Spiritually speaking, slaves, you were dead. Dead in your trespasses and sins. But in love, God went so far not only to pay life for life, but to pay the full redemption price for slaves. Because mercy is more costly than justice. We should be really clear. Mercy is not more costly for the guilty. It is more costly for the one who has been offended. Because that person says, not only did I suffer the loss, I'll suffer it again to make sure Jesus' lifeblood was infinitely more precious to God. And yet the Lord allowed him to be sold at the cost of a slave in order to redeem slaves. Like you and me. Justice is applied to Christ. So that mercy might be applied to you. A table that we will partake of in just a moment depicts all the beauty of justice and mercy. Let's pray. Our God in heaven, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would warm us by it and move us towards Christ. I pray that you would nourish us on this table. We thank you for all of these gifts. In Jesus' name, amen.